Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I will down to Anfield and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you surely man? All right, all you Aston Villa fans, you've kept this secret long enough. It's time to bring it out into the open. You're going to qualify for next season's Champions League, aren't you? <laughs> aren't you? I know you don't want to say it out loud. You'd rather let everyone keep talking about your Man United's, your Newcastle's, mm. maybe even your Brighton's or your Liverpool's, if they go on a late charge. But I see you, I saw you on Saturday ripping Newcastle to shreds, closing the gap behind them to six points. Sorry to do this to you, but I feel duty-bound to bring this all out into the open today. Welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Football Podcast. Oh. Hi, Ken. Hi, Murph. Hey, Owen. How's it oh, going? how are you? Unbeaten in eight games, five wins in a row, and with further matches against top four rivals, Man United and Tottenham. I'm nearly discounting Tottenham Whoa. at this stage, to be honest. They're but anyway, so I'll, I'll call him that. Still to come, who can say for certain Unai Emery won't be leading a team that was barely above the relegation zone when he took charge for the first time in November into the Champions November. League. November, wow. Next season. It's impressive, isn't it? It is very impressive. Do you know when the, what was number one in the charts the last time Aston Villa won five Premier League games in a row? Well, well there's a lot of songs in the charts. What are you saying? What Do you want to give us one? the year? Or is that... Well, that makes it a bit too easy, isn't it? Give, give us the song um, and we'll get the year. Give us the song and we'll get the year. I'll give you a, a strong hint. Um, the last time Aston Villa were on a run of five wins in the round of the Premier League was the same time they were signing the Good Friday Agreement. Oh, okay, so was Spice Girls? Uh, Scar Tissue by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> As mentioned on the pod last week. <laughs> run DMC. Uh, it's like that. Oh. And that's the way it is. And that's the way it is. Yeah, wow. That. that was number one for during the entire run. It was number one for six weeks. Was it? Which fit in the whole Aston Villa run. Um, that's a that's quite a long time ago. Yeah. So this is a, this is a new and pleasant situation for Aston Villa, particularly against I have to say Newcastle United. I thought you might enjoy that. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I'm sure that Aston Villa enjoyed it as well, and I'm sure that Unai Emery enjoyed it because if you remember, Unai Emery had been tapped up to be the Newcastle manager. Yes. Until. Suddenly, he decided not to be, and they appointed Eddie Howe instead. They had interviewed both of them. This was uh, the story was revisited by Craig Hope um, in the Daily Mail, who covers Newcastle and and, and other football. Um, where he, <laughs> I, I enjoyed the telling of the story. Actually, uh, Eddie Howe went to bed thinking he was out of the running, and he woke up to uh, to the news that actually he was the Newcastle manager. Uh, Howe was waking to the school run in another day of unemployment. The dad of three is not prone to bad language. On this occasion, however, a fucking get in was excused. (laughs) (laughs) He took a deep breath, kissed goodbye to his wife, Vicky, and his sons, and entered what he later called work mode. I'm sorry, just to clarify, he wasn't saying to the kids, fucking get in there, I've got work to do. (laughs) Get into that school, on the school run, fucking get in there. Newcastle have just called me, and uh, Newcastle have just called me and and told me that. Uh, Today, how how may well look back on what might have been. For the first time, he will come up against the man whose change of heart altered the course of his own destiny. He is 17 months on, 
infinitely richer in bank balance and reputation. Mm. Without a doubt, it was life-changing, says the 45-year-old. I always believe your life takes the journey it is meant to go on. Okay. I'm not sure everyone's necessarily does, but I suppose it's one way to look at your life, you know? You might as well just, well, look, this is it. Might as well just get on with it, you know? Uh, I was due to come here. That is what happened. But I am here because Unai turned the job down. So I'm delighted he did. Fate has a strange way of working. And now we come together. I'm very thankful he made that decision. Although perhaps not thankful that he made the decision to go to Aston Villa, <laughs> where uh, he, yeah. who uh, flattened Newcastle. Really did. Who themselves really did were on, like, you know, a five, was it five wins in a row? I mean, they absolutely smashed West Ham um, the other the other week uh, in London, and here they are getting absolutely uh, trampled on by Aston Villa, who could have won by more. I mean, they had a goal, a, a VAR goal. I mean, it was it was offside, but it was one of those pretty, uh, pretty narrow ones. Yeah. Um, what I like, though, about the story of the Eddie Howe, you know, everything is that, you know, kind of it's a bit like, are you second choice Eddie Howe? Mm. Well, not exactly. I mean, Unai, Unai Emery uh, apparently got spooked. Uh, he, he, he had agreed to take the job. And then suddenly all the papers the next day were announcing that he, he was the new Newcastle manager. And he was like, but I'm not the new Newcastle manager. Not yet. And I'm a little perturbed at the way that that's all. Remember that time. It, yeah, all, it yeah. all just suddenly feels a little, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this. And so he decided not to go. So Eddie Howe obviously fucking get in. <laughs> he was there. But, uh, but what we now know, and this is important, right? Because the, it, it seems as though maybe Newcastle appointed their second choice. But no, not really. Um, sources have long since said that Howe was by far the more impressive interviewee. He identified specific areas for improvement in both the short and long term and explained how he would achieve these goals. It was, say sources, less of a sales pitch and more a practical demonstration. Newcastle's new chairman, Yasir Al-Rumayan, was sold on the Englishman. Now that's Yasser reminded that Madison, he's an important man. He's the head mm-hmm. of PIF. He's the he's the chair of Saudi Aramco, right? That Saudi yep. uh, national oil producer, chairman of Newcastle United. Got something to do with Live Golf, although exactly what is mm. you know one of those kind of more you know depends what country you're asking the question. Really. <laughs> uh, Are you an American by any chance? But uh, he wanted Eddie Howe. But the thing that you may not have known about Yasser al-Rumayan is that he is actually a very, he's very collegial in his mm. approach. So he's, he's collaborative, he's collegial. He's, above all, a Democrat. And so the fact is that they had agreed on, to vote on him. And Emery won the vote 3-2. Right. Yasser al-Rumayan, I get, you know, he, vo- he voted for the man he's currently mm. got. But when the other, when three of the other interviewers said, actually, we, we want to go for the other guy, he simply held up his hands and said, that's how democracy works. <laughs> yep. that's, fu- that's absolutely fine. You know, I, the people have spoken the bastards I with thought, a big laugh. I thought, I thought Eddie Howe uh, was absolutely brilliant in that, in that Zoom presentation. He really, I'm considering looking at him for, a high, uh, for an important job at maybe Saudi Aramco. Because talent like that shouldn't be left, mm. you know, rotting away doing the yeah, school run yeah. down in Bournemouth. No but, disrespect to the school run, of course. Of course. But, uh, but of course, you know, in the end, fate took its course. Um, Emery ended up at Villa and Aston Villa beat Newcastle United by three goals to nil. Um, and really have shot up the table. Um, and I see the interesting thing about Newcastle was the... Um, the, the kind of rancorous reaction to this, you know? Well, we'll give you some, we'll give you some report on sport music. I will just tell people that... I, I, I will tell people to sign up for our Champions League coverage. I will ask people, I should say, of course. to sign up. Urge people to sign up for World Service membership to hear our coverage of two dead rubbers during the week. <laughs> Real Madrid versus Bayern Munich. Or Bayern Munich versus Man City and Chelsea versus Real Madrid. Listen, I back Ken to make entertaining podcasts yeah. out of the deadest uh, of dead rubbers. That's just the way we go. Secondcaptains.com, Fiverr, Month Plus Fat. Now continue, please, for, with your report on sport. There are other games, of course, huh? Napoli or Vols, you know? Are they going to make it? Are they going to make it? Inter, Benfica, we can't wait. I mean, Inter apparently have lost three games in a row for the uh, three home games in a row. Is it Was it without scoring? For the first time, and since before Aston Villa won five in a row or whatever, but somehow they they look like they're going to get to the Champions League semi-finals. Um, but yeah, the, the Newcastle reaction is pretty angry, and it's it's funny just how quickly this happens. You know, it's like 
you go from total like uh, you know that uh, as Newcastle and Stella the Ashley thing just the, just like mm. like being buried alive mm-hmm. right it's like our club has just been buried alive for 15 years and that's it and we can't we can't we sort of can't interact with anything in any way it's just we just have to sit here existing and this is appalling and now <clears throat> you know the Saudi takeover and quite powerful but it seems as though there's a kind of a rage at now only because Newcastle have only a 75% chance of making the Champions League. Actually, 74% if you, if you look at uh, 538, who, oh, okay. who do the numbers on these things. Yeah. Um, they've got a 74% chance of making Champions League with Brighton at 20, Liverpool at 8, Tottenham at 7, and Villa at only 2. 2% still. Well, according to, according to this. Six points to make up, albeit they've played a game more. Albeit they've played a game more. Let's just say uh, the last couple of times I've interacted with the 538 uh, probability uh, ranking. You know, that's also been a little spotty. election was a long time ago, Murph. It's been a little spotty, yo. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. A long time ago. Um, but uh, I see Dan Byrne is getting it a little bit. Um, Dan Byrne, obviously. Local lad. Well, local lad, but he's a big stick, isn't he? You know? Is he, is he's, 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 a big, he's a big unit. Is he the right shape for a fullback? People are, people mm. are wondering. Well, you he's know? certainly new, but. He's, un, he's unconventional shape. People said the same thing big about Usain tall. Bolt. Too tall to be a good sprinter. You didn't see Donovan Bailey, uh, you know, hitting his head off uh, door jams, did you? Uh, That's what they said, Ken, but they were wrong. <laughs> they were wrong. And they were wrong about Dan Byrne. Well, he should have been in their World Cup squad, well, if you ask Dan Byrne. To me, for me, and Freddie Howe, Dan Byrne has played a great season. Mm. But standards at Newcastle are constantly on the up. And so simply being a, a local lad, a nice man, and uh, who's put in a good season, doesn't necessarily cut it anymore. Mm-hmm. Especially when you do three rarefied now. level. Um, so we will follow the the sort of happiness index there. Speaking <clears> of big units, I know I'm not sure. I don't know if you were going to mention Evan Ferguson's injury, but oh. did you see the Brighton physios? Oh, oh my god! He's, what a rig on him! Well, there was two, there was two, there was two, two of them. Look the two of them. I'm showing you a photo oh, here. I saw, I, okay, I saw, so I saw the guy on the right. Absolutely, yeah, the, the guy, the front yeah. guy, blotted out the guy behind because For, Ferguson's like, no, I, I might be all right. I might be able to walk it off. No, you're going off. All right, lads. <laughs> well, you're the bosses. You're the <laughs> absolutely two of the most yeah. muscle bound physios I've I've seen in Premier League football. So listen, bodies, different body shapes, Ken, in in different roles. We didn't always think physios had to be quite so well built. Yeah. Didn't realize left backs had to be six foot seven inches tall. But mm. times change. Times move on. Yeah. Well, Brighton put put on one of the best performances. I mean, partly partly it's against you know yeah. Chelsea, Frank Lampard, and so on, and and it's three defeats in a row. Now it's a nice batter though, wasn't it? What? Welcome home, Super Frank. How did you? Uh, it was draped know. over like n- nearly the entire length of one of the stands behind did, the goal. There wasn't so much of like, it. There didn't seem to be that much. Like, I mean, come on, like come on, even, Lampard had, even Lampard had the good sense to walk out and not even wave, just go straight to the Brighton bench and then go to the Chelsea bench. <laughs> there, to there was, I mean, Jesus. The stats, like, he, he's won one of his last 17 matches or something as, as manager. Mm. Like, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's mm. really, that's really appalling. Like, I mean, what's what's the. Yeah. And the Chelsea team is hilarious. Like the bench was hilarious. How many good players are on that were on the bench on Saturday? Yeah. Well, Mudrick at least got an assist, and he's now the assist leader in the Premier League with two assists. Uh, so at least there's signs of of promise. But Brighton were were brilliant. Obviously, the, the bad aspect of it, from our point of view, is Ferguson getting injured, and probably now will not be able to play in the FA Cup semi final again. It doesn't look long term, though. You know, it's just mm. a bit like the Fabinho one where. Oh, is this going to be a, a big one? The one that, that scuppers his progress yeah. doesn't seem to be. It seems to be a, well, well, a couple of weeks. To be honest, changed by the time I, you I thought I thought it was it should have been a penalty as well because I mean it was as though the referees were sort of distracted by him getting a good header on it and did it hit the bar? Was it saved? Or was saved, it both? That was saved. Yeah, um, he had an amazing shot earlier on that hit the bar. That hit the bar. T- tipped on as well. I that think. was brilliant. Um, but. And then he sort of injured himself or by the landing. But I also thought he was just kicked across the stomach by the defender. He's nowhere near the ball. I mean, is that, you know, just because he gets a shot on it doesn't mean that, like, getting well, kicked in the stomach. I can't remember it through my tears. No. And now, now that you mentioned it, that idiot presenter on Premier Sports didn't bring it up either. So. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. guy. He's a lot of these Dope. people. <laughs> didn't notice it until Ken brought this up now. <laughs> um, but, yeah, okay, they, um, they, they play. We're going to talk a bit more about them later and why they, uh, why they seem to have this... Uh, inexhaustible reserve of, of talent and ideas. Uh, whether it really is inexhaustible, I suppose, remains to be seen. But I suppose we have to talk a little bit about Arsenal now. Um, 
you know. So this is apparently the first time they've, um, Opta were saying it's the first time they have uh, ever done this, been 2-0 up in two games in a row and ended up uh, not winning. Um, that, that, hadn't, that had never happened before. And so when it does happen, you're sort of like, well, what's the reason? I mean, last week, remember, there was all this, it's the Anfield factor, mm. you know? This is like West Ham. West, West Ham just lost 5-1 at home to Newcastle. That was their previous home game. Mm. They played in midweek in Ghent, I think, um, whereas Arsenal had the week off. And they've been one of the worst teams in the, in the league all season. You know, we were just talking about Declan Rice last week, you know, and all, the, all of the... Fronting up he was doing. Yeah, he's in, and the, the reputational damage he's taken as a result of being the front man for this mm. uh, failed enterprise. And yet... 2-0 down and, it, and you can already hear the crowd you know going and then it just all comes apart for Arsenal again and you know I mean I think it's hard to conclude that this pressure isn't getting to them I mean mm. you know Arteta was saying afterwards you know Saka obviously missed a penalty um, look if you take penalties you're going to miss penalties I mean you've, you've missed a few right <laughs> have you missed have you actually missed uh, I missed one against Dunmore in uh, 2001 and then I missed one against Rahini in 2020. Missed a 14-yard free from front Two of misses so nearly 20 years apart. A couple of years off in between, but uh, yeah. <laughs> fair, <laughs> I mean, a large number Fair of play years. cup 2017 or so? Did you not miss there as well? Oh, I think I did miss there, yeah, but I mean, so it's hardly a competitive... Well, no. It's not a competitive... Well, it was a semi-final, so yeah. one step away from the final. I, I thought the worrying moment for Saka was, I mean, the penalty, you've seen players miss them... Um, Missing the goal altogether seems to seems to be a thing that mm. people do more now these days. And it was obviously Kane, Salah did it twice. Even Luis Suarez did it uh, the other night. You know, Luis Suarez is having this uh, kind of fun uh, late career adventure at Gremio, or whatever. And he's every mm. time I look on the internet, there's another goal by him. But this one, he blasted the ball over the bar. Um, okay, it happens, but. When Saka in the in the second half ended up, he he got the ball. There was a break. I don't know if you recall this moment in the game where he's running through, and oh, it, was, yeah. it was a three on two break. And you're like, okay, here here's the goal. And Saka just made a complete mess of it, just in a, in a very uncharacteristic way. That I just think this is a guy who has he is he looks exhausted. He, I mean, he shot and he sort of cut inside and took it on himself. Is that the one? Yeah, I and mean, he had two teammates well positioned. So usually he's going to commit a defender and play in one of them or find some answer to this but he didn't he, he kind of just uh, in an uncharacteristic for Saka way um, just kind of failed to come up with a solution and gave, gave away the chance and he, it's at a moment like that you're like this guy has actually played so much this season mm-hmm. you know what I mean even Southgate like keeps playing him like uh, you know for, for mm-hmm. against Ukraine or whatever he was playing recently for he played both the internationals for England recently you kind of like maybe I'm I'm almost a little surprised Arteta doesn't find an injury to, you know. I'm sorry, Bukayo, but it seems to me as though your back might be a little bit sore, and you might have, you might not be able to go on international duty for these uh, March games. You know what I mean? It just sort of seems a bit like, what are you doing to him? But <clears throat> I mean, if you so if you look at him actually in the league, um, the only players younger than him who have played as many minutes or more are. Declan Rice and Mark Guehi, mm-hmm. who are um, obviously one's a defensive midfielder, one is a uh, is a central defender. Um, there isn't anyone under twenty five who's played more minutes than him, and the only players who are his age who have played similar minutes are Brennan Johnson, uh, the Nottingham Forest player, and Martinelli, his teammate. Right, so Arsenal have got a problem here. I think when you look at City. This is the game. I mean, Haaland gets taken off at halftime. Like the City game uh, on the weekend, uh, for those of you who, who watched it, followed the pattern that it looked like the Arsenal game was going to follow, except City actually finished the job. Yeah, well, this is the thing, though. I mean, and perhaps we should have been taking a bit more cognizance of it all the way along, but this is always going to be a struggle for Arsenal. I mean, the, the, they don't have the resources that City have, quite obviously, and therefore they are going to have to play all their players probably give them more minutes than this what the, I'd imagine that if, if if it is a fatigue issue I'm sure the sports science guys are noticing it as well and maybe politely bringing Mikel Arteta's 
attention to it, but yeah, what's he, he going to do? He can't. He can't, he can't leave Saka out. I mean, he, no. he left him out against, uh, was it Leeds recently? Because they we're playing at home. I think we can win this. And they did win. Uh, and he, he came on sort of late. But realistically, like, you can't leave him out. He's He's the best player in the team, right? I mean, he's... I mean, there there are a few candidates for that, I guess, at Arsenal this season. But I think he is a player who, more than anyone else, allows them to unlock a game against the team that's defending. You know what I mean? He can do so many different things. It's so difficult to defend against when he's obviously in top. I mean, he wasn't he he wasn't like this against West Ham. You know, so Arsenal fans would say Odegaard is the, has been their best player. Odegaard has been Odegaard has been Martinelli uh, is an outside chance there as well. Yeah, they've. They, I mean, the reason that Arsenal are where they are is these guys have been playing brilliantly. But Artel, I think, has made fewer changes than any other manager. Um, they've still used more players than Man City, I think. But they don't. A lot. Some of these players are real kind of, uh, you know, fringe players. Guys like uh, Kivior or Suarez or Cedric Suarez or, or you know, uh, Laconga and, and you know, you know what I mean. Nelson, they're, they're not. Yeah. It's not like we're we're City have kind of. City might have Bernardo Silva on the bench. You know, City will have Mares on the bench. You know, they're um, yeah. they're slightly different. And the way that City are, are going at the moment, I mean, has kind of, I mean, for, remember the first half of the season, we're sort of like, well, you know, Haaland being in the team means the team is quite different. Guardiola isn't, isn't really keen on it. Um, the you know they're they're letting in they're scoring more but they're also letting in more and they're letting in more than there's the the increase in what they're letting in is bigger than the increase in what they're scoring okay that's now changed um and because he basically found a way to do it he's found the system that allows him to control the game and also have Haaland just doing his thing yeah um and at this point I don't really see how <laughs> I'm 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 interested to see if anybody can can stop this now because what Haaland is doing is just beyond like I mean he, he equaled um, Salah's record uh, he's still got like eight was it eight or seven matches to go I mean Guardiola's taken him off at half time or he would have I'm sure scored another goal or two and is emerging as like head and shoulders above every other player in world football at the moment yeah. I mean this this guy is like I mean when have you ever seen anything well, like this sorry we don't have to do the Mbappe comparison again. Well, that's true. I mean, Mbappe, like, where, where is Mbappe? You know? Uh, back healing beautifully for a Lionel Messi goal that I saw on Saturday night. Who were they playing? Um, it was either Lens or Lille. It was Lens. Or Lyon. <laughs> 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 Certainly one of those three. No, it was it was Lens, I believe. Uh, or the slag heaps of Lens <laughs> uh, were lit up by the brilliance of the PSG uh, you never miss a chance cares. to mention the slag heaps of Lille, do you? Well, I've seen them. You're always, I, uh, you're always sticking the boot into the Lille. slag heaps of Lens. Have you ever been to Lens? No. Well, I have. And I'll tell you, those slag heaps are <laughs> impressive. They're very, they're they're properly conical, you know what I mean? God. Mm. They've gotten a really they're bad rep over the years, haven't they? Slag heaps. I was surprised by how, by how sort of tall and, na- they're like traffic cones. There's our title for the podcast anyway, today. The slag heaps of Lille. Lens. Lens. <laughs> um, hey, listen, Arsenal are going to, look, this is well set up now, right? Because the, it was always going to come down to this Man City Arsenal game. Now Arsenal have to, actually have to get a point. Mm. At least, it kind of doesn't. Yeah. Ma- it kind of right. doesn't and matter. They, and they need to get a point. But this sorry, two-all draw doesn't really matter. <laughs> Arsenal, Arsenal <laughs> needed the draw. They in need, a way, they, it doesn't no, change what Arsenal have yeah, to do. It, yeah, uh, well, except for all the other hard that. games they have to play, like you guys. But no, my point about the uh, the, the uh, city game is, you know, they if they were to go and if they had won all these other games, gone there, gotten a, a stuffing. And would it have been a real league title if mm. they'd had the double done over them by Man City? Would Arsenal fans have been happy to accept that? I mean, it's happened. Uh, you know, you can. There, there have been instances of that happening. Whereas now they I could be league really champions, having no. had some amazing results at at Man City. That's the positive spin to put on Arsenal today. Well, if they, beat, if they beat Man City, then they're they're in a great position. Oh, if they beat, at, absolutely. At the yeah, moment, yeah. it just doesn't look as though they're capable they were, of doing that. But Arsenal were going to have to win all their games. Rob, if Rob Holding were always going to win if all they the draw other games against Man City, to use the phrase, it's still in Arsenal's hands. If it's going so, yeah, to be Rob exactly. Holding against Erling Haaland, it's good night. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's hard night, it's hard to see how they can how they can um, do that. And and then it's, it becomes this. I don't know if you saw this argument between like Gary Neville and. Hasselbank and Keane were talking about whether it was going to be a disaster for Arsenal not to win the league. Mm, it's no. a disaster. Which, I mean, I think it was Neville disagreeing, saying, no, it's not. I mean, how can you say that? You know, they've had a great season, blah, blah, blah. 
it is a disaster, says Jimmy, because like you're 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 winning, and then suddenly you don't. It doesn't matter what it was at the beginning of the season. What matters is you were there, you had the chance, and then suddenly it's not going to happen. Mm. I don't know. I f- I kind of feel like he's he's sort of right about that. Like I mean, the thing is that you Arsenal, when you look at them, have got the youngest team in the in the division, right? That's so. This is a team which should keep getting better. Uh, that's. You know, the, the, there is plenty of evidence for that. But you don't know that that's ever going to happen. You only get a certain number of goals at this kind of a situation. Yeah. I kind of think if City beat Arsenal, right, and then move away from them and get the job done with a few games to spare, it might feel like less of a disaster than if there's a, a Gerrard moment in the last oh, couple God. of games or something mm. like that. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. almost like if they get put out of their misery early on and if Man City win that game, everyone is it's just, it's gone, you know, like that's the way. And maybe there's, you get to the end of the season and you can think well we you know we gave it a shot and we were but whereas mm. if then the closer you get to something the worse it's going to yeah, feel maybe. if you, and you know, I, was, I was going to start saying stuff like well Liverpool Chelsea United will never be as bad as they are this season but honestly Liverpool and Chelsea could actually be as bad next season yeah. you know like it seems to me like both of those are multi-year projects uh, United might be a bit better Newcastle will probably be a good bit better I mean, it might not be a complete disaster when you think about it in that they should be good enough to challenge again next year. Yeah. But geez, but they were in an that, unbelievable position. I mean, and Arsenal have, have had this situation themselves before. I mean, th- these teams that were always going to be next year's team, you know, Fabregas yeah. and Van Persie and Adebayor and Kleb, you know, that, those teams, and Na- you know, Nasri, these guys who were going to be even better next year. And actually, they just all ended up joining Man City or Man United or Barcelona. You know, it mm. just it just dis- dissipated. So, um, so yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough situation. Well, look, there's more, there are more games still to go. I see that Juan Laporta is doing a press conference today mm-hmm. uh, where he, I, I believe for the first time, is actually speaking to the, uh, the press about the... Negrera, El Caso Negrera. This is the one where they paid all the money to the vice president of the Referees Association or whatever. But it was simply for for reports. For consultancy work. Yeah. Uh, And he's done lots of comments in like um, private settings where he goes to see like the Barca Superfan Association in whatever town he's in. And then he gives a speech about how Barcelona are the victims of conspiracy and... Uh, everyone cheers and then he walks out of the room. But this is the first time he's actually speaking to the media and taking questions, which apparently has been going on for some time. Uh, he did set a stall out uh, by saying that uh, Javier Tebas, the uh, La Liga president, has participated in public lynching of FC Barcelona. Uh, that's how he characterizes <laughs> the situation. Um, warning uh, that submissiveness is not synonymous with Juan Laporta. He, he says this according to Tariq Panja he's following that a few times but they're basically saying or he, he I mean it's it's just a, a 100% stonewall denial accusation of conspiracy on behalf of all of his supposed enemies so uh, Real Madrid are a, a historically favoured organisation he says uh, so it's kind of it's a bit rich mm. to hear from them that we're trying to simply because we paid this man 7.3 million euros which according to Tarek he said it sounds like a lot but it was paid over 18 years <laughs> just because we paid this guy 7.3 million uh, you know I mean sure if we paid him for over one season but the fact that we've paid him for almost two decades surely lessens our culpability in the eyes of the public the point the point that Tarek makes is the, these reports must have been seriously high quality in total 7.3 million euros paid would work out at something like 10,000 euros per report over the 18 year period so I mean we, we would all do this I'm pretty sure this is the, the problem Barcelona have is that you could get anybody even a very high, highly qualified person it doesn't just have to be like someone's nephew who's in on work experience you could mm. actually hire a top professional to compile reports on referees for a lot less than 10 grand per report over an 18 year you know so the so the question still remains: is Why did it have to be the vice president of the of the referees uh, body that's that you paid all this money to do? You know, so there doesn't really seem to have been any answers. So they're basically saying um, there's no question here that we did anything. You can't prove that we did anything to influence sporting outcomes. Mm. You know, so just because we were paying this guy 
doesn't mean that he then did us any refereeing favours. And there's a, a kind of a hint that uh, Barcelona may have been stitched up by some of their own directors in a kind of a that the that the scheme was that was a sort of a, a circular thing where like you it's know the call is coming from inside the house yeah 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 sort of <laughs> two for you one for me kind of a, mm-hmm. a thing you know this this might have been but of course since Juan Laporta was also the president for a whole previous uh, period of this I mean it's it's still it's difficult for him anyway that that thing is still going on as we record uh, and we'll see I suppose tomorrow if there's anything really uh, stunning any stunning developments out of it Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. They are the champions. They have taken the title away from Manchester United. And they have done it here at Old Trafford. It does not get more it's very difficult to see Arsenal play one day without Arsenal on the bench. He's going to ruin the club, fam. He's going to ruin the club, blood. I'm telling you, fam. And up and down the land, you do sense a genuine appreciation for the way this Arsenal team play. They were perfect. It's turning. It's turning, blood. Did you hear the booze at full time? Seriously, shut the fuck up tonight. I'm not in no mood for no little dickheads chatting shit. We'd love to have him there all the time, but we all know that's not going to happen. One day he's going to have to go. Spineless! Where were they in the second half? Spineless! No fucking character, no fucking leadership. Where does that boil down to? It boils down to the fucking manager. He's finished. It will be hard. He's not thinking of leaving one day. He was a great manager. He's gone. He's gone. I don't, I, it will happen eventually. We all know it. But I, I don't see it. Arsenal Football Club. Man. For me, the day I will see Arsenal play without Arsenal on the bench, it's, it's going to be weird. Don't try to question my fan base. Don't try to question my fan base, okay? Fan base, you can't, right, listen. I can't I can't get angry I can't get angry like I did before because it's it's just It's the independence, Miguel Delaney and Jack Pitbrook of The Athletic this week on the weekend that Arsenal blew their title chance. Is that a fair way to start this chat, Jack? No, not quite, but it's not looking good, is it? Mm. Um, I mean, it's not just that they have to basically what, win every remaining game, I think, or, um, or at least avoid win the, win the rest and avoid defeat to Manchester City. But I think the manner in which they've been well ahead in the game against Liverpool which is one thing, but West Ham United, which is a game which I think everyone was pretty sure they would win, or at least I was. Um, and then to to completely lose control of the game in the way that they did. And then, of course, to you know to, to miss that great chance to go 3-1 up, and with that, surely would have been the game. It does make you pretty anxious, doesn't it, about their capacity to, um, to get over the line. Miguel, is it a bit of a, 
are they beginning to choke, to use that word, or is there something else? Is it simply fatigue? They've played a lot of the same players for a large part of this season. Well, I think there's three elements to this, really. First of all, I definitely think uh, yesterday, and to a certain degree against Liverpool, they suffered from key absences, especially in defence. I mean, yesterday it was pretty clear that without Saliba there, Mikel Antonio really fancied running at Rob Holding. Same for Jared Bowen against Kieran Tierney. And also, beyond given that this wasn't his usual backline, I thought Ramsdale was a lot more... Um, I mean, he's been quite commanding this season, uh, Ramsdale. He was brilliant in the um, previous game. Yeah, and but yesterday I thought he was all over. But he started flapping at corners, which kind of fostered the sense that a West Ham equaliser was coming uh, before it did. Uh I think all of that is connected to something bigger, which I think in this game, I would maybe I wouldn't go so far with the Liverpool game because I think that was maybe specific to the circumstances. But in this game, I think it would be fair to say that they choked, they bought whatever phrase you want to use. But I think it was pretty clear. I, I, I thought from even the minute before the West Ham penalty, they were uh, they were sort of short circuiting as, as we were discussing off air before Ken. Uh, th- things that Arsenal have been doing so well this season, they just stopped doing. Because even after the game, Arteta referenced how they started the game with a sense of flow, but that obviously went. But I think that's connected to something bigger, which is, I mean, A, it's their first title title challenge, or this team's first title challenge, which brings its own kind of learning experience. But equally, there's the context, which is the inherent knowledge that at this point against a city on this form it was like they were suddenly aware of the immense stakes. I mean, for most of Premier League history, two two-all draws, even allowing for the comeback nature of them, uh, would kind of be just, you know, drop-offs that contribute to the drama. But in the last decade, and especially in the last half decade, as Guardiola and City have kind of come to this final stage of what they are, it's pretty much fatal. Yeah. Um, you know, but... but... I don't know. I mean, I I wonder what you think happened between the, you know, if we if we could look at that period when Arsenal because this is the second time it's obviously happened in a row, two 0 up, play like playing brilliantly, two 0 up, looks like you're going to win four 0 you know, everything's going great, and then something goes wrong. And Arteta said after the game, we made a huge mistake, you know, we didn't keep playing for the third, the fourth goal. Um, and I was kind of thinking, yeah, I agree, but. Uh, you're not a pundit. Like you're the actual guy in charge here. Was it? Wasn't? Is there nothing that he can do to impress on to, to change the pattern? Is this just something that like kind of the team has to get through by itself? The knowledge of this kind of situation, the pressure that they're that they're under, um, or has Arteta himself kind of um, helped to enable these collapses? Well, I, I do wonder whether this is a little bit related to how Arteta coaches. And it's also actually been something that's been seen in, and, and this is um, entirely consistent, given that Arteta's worked under Guardiola, but something we've seen in some of Manchester City's uh, title collapses, or sorry, their Champions League collapses, in that these teams are so supremely coached that when things start to go wrong or go against, or go against what they expect, they don't necessarily know how to react. But why, does that, that, why does that follow, though? I mean, surely a team that's well-coached should... should also be coached to, to react to, oh, you know, we have to go to plan B now, but that's okay because we're well coached. But I think it's so it's so automated and it, 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 it sort of games going into kind of areas that are just totally... I mean, the last two Arsenal games basically descended into chaos that we've seen in City's Champions League games as well. And I thought there was... I mean, this obviously doesn't explain it, but I thought it was interesting after the game when Arteta was all, asked about all this and you could kind of sense this a little bit of conflict in him in that... Obviously, he wants to lay into the mistakes they made and address that. But then Arsenal's whole title challenge has been about this kind of supreme, this kind of very modern element of coaching of confidence in what you're doing, focus on what you're doing. And even what he said, we have to just remind them how good they've been, basically to keep about the process. But of course, the process maybe takes you, as we've seen with City in Europe, until this season perhaps, it takes you 85 to 90% of the way but there's still that remaining 10%. And, and maybe that is something that comes with experience with, uh, and then not least with Arteta himself, because I think some of some of his decisions in-game in the last two matches may have been a little bit surprising, although he obviously has his own logic for them. What, what about, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, I think we talked about the uh, Liverpool game, but what about yesterday's game struck you as, ooh, not sure about that. 
Uh, once again, actually, the very, I mean, I suppose he took off Gabriel Jesus for, um, for probably for physical issues, but taking off Odegaard again, um, for the second game in a row when they actually needed something. And um, in both instances, they had moments where an Odegaard pass would have potentially opened up the opposition on a break and he wasn't there. Uh, again, I mean, maybe it was more explicable in the, in the Liverpool game given he was trying to adapt to the um, to what Liverpool were doing to them. But it felt like it seeded advantage at the time, especially to go so defensive. It then cost them when it finally inevitably went to 2-all. Yeah. Uh, Jack, I mean, I can see today there's, there's sort of quite, there's a bit of bargaining going on with Arsenal fans um, who are kind of trying to... I mean, everyone can sort of see the pattern. The, the pattern of the season is now uncomfortably like uh, you've gone 2-0 up in a game and suddenly it's 2-all. Oh, no. Uh, and it's the kind of... You know, nobody expected Arsenal to be in this position. I think they were sixty-six to one to to win the league, and now they're now they've still got a great chance of doing it, but not as good a chance as they had a couple of weeks ago. Um, how do you think they should reflect on this if they end up losing it in in, in the final stretch? This is something they were never expected to win, and yet they we're in a great position, and maybe it's not going to happen. And if that happens, how do you think they should reflect on this? Well, I think they should reflect on it with a lot of pride because it's obviously a big achievement given you know what happened last season where they missed out on on fourth place. I don't think anybody would have expected them to be there. That said, I think it'll be really, really painful. I mean, remember it they've always Arteta's Arsenal have always reminded me a bit of a kind of slightly uh slightly better back version of Pochettino's Tottenham, or at least in the first few years, where you know, you've got this, the, the club's been a bit of a mess for a while and then you get in this new young manager who's got a clear idea about how he wants football to be played and he gets rid of the old players who don't agree with it and he brings in new players who are really, you know, who look like they they worship the ground that he walks on. But I think the problem that they have, like Pochettino's Tottenham, is, well, firstly, as Miguel said, they don't really, you know, they've never been in this position before and so they don't have that experience to fall back on. And secondly, also, as Miguel said, they... um they're so kind of invested in in the truth of plan a and the the methods that they've been following over the course of the season that when things start to wobble they find it very very difficult to um to kind of come, to come back after things go wrong i mean it's it's impossible to to watch arsenal at the moment and not think of you know tottenham at the end of 2015 16 where they were they confounded everyone's expectations but were eventually um you know leicester city were just a bit better than them Tottenham couldn't come up and then their heads went at the end of the season. I don't know what's going to happen over the last of the last kind of six, seven games of this season, but at the moment it feels like you know the situation is just um getting out of their grip. Well listen, Miguel, when it all falls apart for Mikel Arteta at Arsenal, they can always go calling the manager of Aston Villa, Unai Emery, for an emotional return to the club. This guy I'm, <laughs> I'm obsessed with Aston Villa this weekend. They've they've snuck into this position. Nobody's really talked about them. Nobody's really talked about them. That's what everyone says about about every team that they don't feel has had enough coverage. We haven't really talked about them, is what I should say. I mean he took over his first game I was looking back at it was beating Manchester United three one, their first away win in the league, first home win in the league against Man United for twenty seven years. We should have should have realised then something was up. And um, they had a wobble when they lost against a few they lost about three in a row a while back, but that was against the likes of City and Arsenal and so on. Um they've now won five in a row, unbeaten in eight. They have got Man United and Spurs still to come. Were they to win those games? Is it totally outlandish to suggest that Unai Emery could lead Aston Villa from basically just above the relegation zone into the Champions League, having taken over mid-season. Well, I think the line that has to be said, given who they're facing at the weekend, uh, what a job Unai Emery's done, by the way. Oh, really? Um, yeah. he, but he, I mean, I think, I mean, first of all, um, given Beal left in the summer, and I know this was a bit of a debate with it or around Villa at the start, but basically Villa lost any semblance of tactical structure a bit under Janet. You, that can be seen in the results. They first of all benefited from that. And secondly, I would put Emery, I mean, the story of his career, but he's in, he's possibly the best of that kind of second tier of managers just outside the... It's uh, all this second tier the, talk. Well, I mean, look, look, he's, he's, he's basically the Europa League's uh, Unai Emery. What is the Europa League if not a second tier competition? But that isn't a discount. He's a, he's a very good manager. Uh, very tactically astute. Um, he's put shape on Villa. Uh, I do think they've benefited now. I mean, uh, even the fact that 
five successive wins puts you in the brink of the Champions League in a way that possibly wouldn't have been the case for a lot of the last decade. Because, I mean, this can't be discounted either. And for as good as he's done to jump from just above the relegation zone to where he is now is remarkable. But obviously, it's a little bit of a 2015-16 by the title race in that we're having horror seasons for all of Chelsea, Spurs and Liverpool. That, like, that does create an opening. But they're fully benefiting from it. And every single player looks transformed. And they're transformed because every player has a very clear idea in that system, which is, I suppose, what, what the fundamentals of coaching are all about. Does Ollie Watkins, Jack, have any weaknesses? Hmm. He's amazing, isn't he? He's um, he's already looking like the the best of all the non, or along with Marcus Rashford, the best of all the non Harry Kane English strikers like most English most of the English strikers that Southgate has to choose from who are not Kane are generally like big number nines who you would hit it up to whether that's Abraham Bamford Calvert-Lewin etc whereas Watkins is completely electric isn't he because he actually he actually runs in behind defenders and gives them I guess as, as Rashford does and gives them problems there. He's been incredible recently. Like his, uh, I never, I genuinely never thought he was as good as he is looking right now. In not just in terms of his movement, but his, uh, in terms of his, his finishing and kind of an all-round uh, team and link-up play too. He's amazing. Miguel, you mentioned that Chelsea is one of the teams who are allowing the likes of Villa and Brighton and these sides to have a sniff of a Champions League place. I mean. I was I covered the Brighton game at the weekend. It was incredible. And actually, even thinking back to the Spurs, I don't know how Spurs won the game last week against Brighton because they were really good that day. But they just absolutely outplayed a team who've spent £600 million on players over the last few months or over the course of the season. Is is Zerbi as a sort of managerial genius? I saw Stephen Kenny saying in, on the international break that he's never seen anyone use a system, play a, a system of football the way that Zerbi does. I think, from that perspective, he's genuinely seen as innovative in football. One of the with one of the first very new things tactically has almost come in in the last five years. Uh, and and, really, and what, is a new, what is a new thing, though? What exactly are they saying? Well, in, in, in terms of inviting inviting a ta- like people often talk about in coaching circles talk about the immense risk of this, which is why it's such a brave system, which is basically inviting attacks uh, into very dangerous areas and then hitting there. And it's so it's something to that depth not really seen uh, and, and something that has been in, and it's made Brighton so dangerous. Again, there's potentially a second season issue where people have rumbled it, but that's something to come. Uh, for the moment, and I think because this goes beyond the Zerbi, it's really about the, the, the people that picked the Zerbi as well, Brighton should be a model club, especially how um, you can get into um, bigger debates about ownership and that. But in terms of how they've sustainably built themselves up, built themselves up through correct choices, through good structure, and then through very good appealing football, especially if you consider what they played under Chris Uton only five years ago. No disrespect to Chris Uton. Well, it is that quite should be a model. But yeah. I mean, it wasn't always best to watch. But um, but again, and, and, and Brighton. I mean, whatever we're saying about Villa. Brighton would potentially be on the brink of a champ of Champions League football themselves had it not been for the totally opposite model, which is another state-owned club, Newcastle, occupying one of those places, which should be a big discussion, especially what we're talking about with the title race as well. But then I, I don't really want to get into that right now. It's more about also what Brighton are doing. I mean, look, one of the first moves that Newcastle made, appointing Dan Ashford. Yeah. Ashworth. So Brighton have lost Ashworth. They've lost Potter. They've lost what three, four key players over the Pesuma, last year. Ben White, yeah. Pesuma, yeah. They, they've they've lost other coaches, other executive staff, and despite that, this, they haven't just kind of sustained. They've actually got better uh, while playing better football. Evidently, the recruitment team is is remarkable, and it's a real um, it's a real story for the season. That and especially with all the kind of the issues of modern football we've talked about so much on the show and elsewhere, um, that, that that is something to look at and to, to seek to replicate. You got a um, a good look at Brighton uh, recently, Jack. I guess um, Tottenham beat them two one in what I suppose in hindsight is is one of the most impressive results in Spurs' history. Um, but you know they they obviously lost that day. There was some ref- the, the referees ended up apologising to them, so that was obviously a part of the story. But um, how do you think they're doing this? I mean, as Miguel says, they've they've kind of supplied half the league with uh, players and technical staff and coaches and and so on. And 
somehow they just keep improving. Yeah, I mean, it took a bizarre combination of refereeing and VAR decisions in that game to help Tottenham win. I mean, it was the most... Um, they were very, very unfortunate not not to have won that game. Um, but I think overall, the Bright- as Miguel says, the Brighton strategy just shows the huge inbuilt advantage it is, even now in the Premier League, um, being clever, like think being able to think strategically, know exactly what you're trying to do, do your do your research with the with the help of analytics, looking at all sorts of different profiles of people you're trying to bring in, and having a plan in case things go wrong. I mean, so many sounds that, basic. That sounds, sounds like just basic. It, good it sense sounds incredibly though. obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so many You'd be surprised. So many yeah. Premier, yeah. so many Premier League clubs don't run themselves that way. So many Premier League clubs go for you know who what what's a, who's a sexy famous manager that we've heard of that we can appoint and then we can retrofit the strategy around him who's a famous player that we would you know we've seen play on tv and we'd, we'd like to bring into the club like it's the level of thinking in premier league clubs is so low that all it takes is brighton and brentford to actually put a little bit of thought into what they're trying to do and they can confound the whole model even with the huge kind of upward drag uh caused by the resource Im- imbalance in um in the premier league so even though brentford and brighton lose so many people higher up the pyramid because of course as soon as anyone does anything well they get they get stripped they manage to turn that into advantage because that that creates money which they can then continue to to use intelligently it's kind of i mean it's amazing how well they've done over the last five years or so but it's also it's kind of damning of english football the um yeah what a huge advantage that simply being clever is uh because everybody else is so stupid although well, and, i mean that, that that's actually what money does i mean i remember that's something i've heard within football a few times basically that <laughs> a lot of money makes you stupid now that's not true of say manchester Man city, city. But pretty much good best in class as the phrase goes mm-hmm. in nearly everything but the, the game that Jack is referencing there the one I mean th- that almost shows the biggest contrast in that Brighton go from managers they have a very with every element of the team from centre back to the manager itself they know exactly what they're looking for it fits into existing profile and hopefully can, can make that profile evolve too which I think is pretty key in this with Spurs well Brighton know exactly what they are Spurs, and this is you, you could say this with a few clubs, um, including up until maybe recently Manchester United, say they don't really have a clear idea of what they want to be. Essentially, through Levy, they think they're a big six club, but they're really one of those clubs in the tier below who work best when they're trying to be upwardly mobile, almost like a higher scale Brighton. And hence, they've had their best success under a manager who exactly fits that profile, but they've suffered the greatest disappointment. And as Jack points to there, Two big name managers who, and one of them in Conte, who was just never going to be a fit because he he had greater demands than what they could offer. And as soon as you get into that, where there's kind of disconnections in between different parts, and obviously it was really pronounced with Conte, that's when things start to fall apart. Yeah, well, you know, things things have a way of falling apart in due course. You know, uh, even when you're doing things really well, that doesn't mean that you're still going to be doing things well in a, in a couple of years. And uh, I'm struck by the contrast between Brighton. Uh, and a club who, who that used to get uh, a lot of credit for some of the same type of stuff, but that's no longer the case, which is Liverpool. Um, and just the way in which Brighton can bring in a player like Enciso, uh, a 19-year-old Paraguayan who scores one of the best goals of the season, you know, beats Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. This kind of thing has been happening all season. You know, Karen Matoma, you know, a player who was, let's say, unheralded, right, has, has been... Absolutely sensational. One of the best players Evan in the Ferguson, league. Evan Ferguson, of course. Hmm? Evan Ferguson. Evan Ferguson. Um, another great saying. Well, he decided to go to Brighton rather than Liverpool, which looks like a sensible decision. But just just on Liverpool, I know there was the whole Bellingham drama um, this week and apparently some, some bad-tempered exchanges um, between Klopp and some of the journalists uh, covering that. You know, their struggle to sign players, this is, this is the thing they used to be uh, good at. But it seems as though a kind of an obsession with the perfect player is leading them to disregard all of the perfectly good players mm-hmm. with potential. You know, the kind of player they used to sign, like uh, Vinaldum or, or Matip or Firmino or, or, or Andy Robertson. Um, 
and they've got into this weird zone where like you know the the, the fans a lot of the fans want them to spend like you know a, a world record fee <laughs> on, on Bellingham when actually they need about five or six players um, what is your kind of take on how they've managed to, to go from clever to stupid in such a short space of time uh, I mean I suppose it's an element of kind of uh, I'm going to quote the Dark Knight Rises here but victory defeating them in some way well in, in the sense that they've got used to a certain level and they're now they've come back around to the other side of the cycle and they're not primed for it first of all there's been a lot of shifts in um, the personnel behind the clock secondly I forget who said this to me so apologies to, to who but I think it's a very good line in that now Liverpool are at the point where um, rather than looking at a player's potential and accepting their flaws because they see how they develop it's like, as you said, they almost want the perfect ready-made player. And the perfect ready-made player often costs a lot of money. And this is one of the things that's kind of um, struck me about the whole Bellingham thing as well. In that, especially when, and, and this is the club's fault to a certain degree because of how much this has been, been built up, all the kind of stuff about you know, the players talking to him in the England camp, all, all of that. But there's always another player. Mm. But unless you're talking about, say, Messi, or at this point, Haaland and Mbappe, there's always, I mean, look, again, look at look at the example across the league. Arsenal were so desperate for Mudrick in January. They went for Trossard, who's worked out better. Um, and and again, it, it comes back to that, whereas, you, just, okay, Bellingham might have represented a, a certain ideal about exactly what they wanted, but, but they can just adapt and it can maybe fit in to what they're doing. I mean, people will obviously point to kind of Alisson and Van Dijk as, you know, previous representations of what Bellingham were, that exactly ideal player. But that was at a different stage of the process. Van Dijk and Allison were very specific final pieces of the jigsaw where that was more understandable. I mean, whatever, the pieces are all over the place at the moment. They're building again, and that doesn't necessitate the same exact perfect player for that price in that role. They can, I mean, in some ways, Pop actually has a bit of freedom now to, to build again. As a matter of, maybe that's been reflected in actually some of the other names that we're seeing being, uh, being spoken about. Sorry, which names are you talking about? Well, in terms of like, you know, I mean, basically there's a, there's a strand of 30 to 60 million pound midfielders that aren't Bellingham's level, but potentially can work very well under Klopp. I mean, one of them is actually Conor Gallagher. I know when, when that, I wrote it actually two weeks ago, and when that went down, I can't say it was exactly an enthusiastic response from <laughs> Liverpool fans. So one of your you articles, Miguel. I can't believe. It wasn't the subject of the article. It was the, uh, <laughs> the interest in the player. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, but he's also under Klopp in 2017. Again, I suppose we're into bigger questions now about whether Klopp can build a new team again. And that, that's something way beyond what we're talking about. But under Klopp in 2017, you could actually see Gallagher being exactly the, that sort of player that, that could do very well under him. Similarly, some of the other names are looking at Paulinho at Fulham, uh, Thoram, the, the, the younger Thoram. Um, and again, Liverpool's great virtue before they brought in these big signings in Alisson and Van Dijk was turning this sort of strand of £30 million player into something worth much more than that. Yeah. Um, just on, on that, Jack, uh, I'm sure that Miguel's Conor Gallagher uh, story was was responsibly sourced. Um Klopp was arguing with journalists in his press conference and and he kind of went into one of these uh, you are fake news uh, modes uh, and some of the some of the journalists didn't like that. I wondered have you ever been accused of of fake news by manager and if so do you take it personally when it happens? Um no, not to my face. <laughs> um and... would you would you take it as a as a brutal and bilious insult? Um, no, I think in part you probably think it's you probably think it was good that the manager had been annoyed by something that you'd written. One because it shows that they're reading you, and two because you know generally as long as you're confident in what you've written, um, it's it shows that you you kind of rattled them, or rather you you've written something which they've hopefully has pissed them off because they they know it's true. I've certainly had situations where. I've written something which I knew was true and it, it went down very badly with various former Tottenham managers. And I was pleased that I was pleased to know that I'd kind of mm. uh, la- landed a punch in the right place. 
to you uh, on that though yeah, ma- on. managers barely know who we are and in fact it's, that's true it is that's amazing. very true it, it is amazing you, you see it's like a homer simpson mr burns dynamic it's like you've seen me every day for the last five years and you still <laughs> have no idea right? they, they have no idea who we work for what we generally write but again one of the most disarming and this says it all one of the most disarming things a manager can still do particularly a top level manager is call a journalist by his first name <laughs> it's true yeah yeah <laughs> That's all it takes to defang you, uh, Miguel. Just call you, Miguel. If Jurgen Klopp thinks he's got an unfairly tough ride from the people who cover Liverpool day in, day out over the last few years, then that says something about how thin-skinned he's become. Because I think he has, you know, I think he's he's got a lot of praise, and understandably so, because he's built a really good team. But the, the tenor of the coverage of Klopp's Liverpool has not been critical. Oh no! It's and been, so if he's getting, if he's, I mean, for him to be as upset as he clearly has been over the last few months by coverage, I think does not does not reflect well on him. No, and, and just on, just on that though, yeah. And Klopp might well refer to this as fake news, yeah. but I mean, and I'm just passing on what I've been told. Um, some of Klopp's reaction does point to this kind of growing talk that. We're now seeing the other, the, basically the other side of the coin with Klopp, which is while his personality and all the energy can at one point make a team very good, he's also very difficult and demanding to work for. Some people say that's led to uh, issues in terms of Liverpool's recruitment of staff. And again, it, obviously there's a bigger context here and how much, how much staff have, have changed in, in the last uh, two years. And that's feeding into a situation now where Almost everything has to be built up again, uh, but also kind of it's also kind of another theory I've been growing with as well, or been developing where every manager ultimately follows the Jose Mourinho arc, even those who at one point were considered his great kind of contrasting figures in Klopp and Pep. So we're in. You, you see him as being in some kind of terminal Mourinho slide into into uh, late career relevance. No, no, not not that. More so that they all get so. Self-involved is probably the wrong word, but they all get, because they've had a certain level of success with their principles, they get so devoted to their principles and what it says about them that a a real pride gets into it and they become increasingly um, cantankerous and uh, acidic about about criticism. Um, And I think Guardiola's had a little bit of that as well. And I think, um, and, and again, this goes against what, I mean, it's only a few years ago where Guardiola and Klopp were being talked about how, you know, they encourage players and motivate them, whereas Mourinho was still of that school of hard knocks more associated with the with the early 90s. But, it does, but given, given Guardiola's talk about happy flowers this year, given what we're saying here about how Klopp can, t- can apparently talk to people and how play, one of the lines you hear is, Players love it and accept it when they're when it's going well, but as soon as it goes bad, it's one of the first things they talk about with Klopp how difficult he can be. Uh, yeah, and that's, that follows that same pattern. I think spoken a lot about, about how Liverpool basically failed to rebuild when they were on top, and they should have really, in hindsight, dismantled the team in 2020, 2019, and how you know Henderson's been there too long, Fabinho's been there too long, Van Dijk's too been there too long, maybe Klopp's been there too long. You know, he's coming up to, what, eight years in the job now? That's quite a lot. That's a long time to be in such a, you know, high-pressure, public-facing environment. Jack, Miguel, excellent stuff. Thanks, Emil. Thank you. Thanks, lads. Bang to the head. This was given to me by one of these guys right here. <laughs> was a hell of a rugby player. And they beat the hell out of black and tan. Black and tan. Defense of the robot. It's the bang to the head. How many times have you mixed bastards been told, eh? Followed by another bank to that. Anyone wearing orange is not welcome here. <laughs> Mr. Biden, a quick word for the BBC. They've not put my hand in my pocket since they left. They paid me 500 pounds. BBC, I'm Irish. If any fool wants to pay me 500 pounds to gibber and jabber, I'll take his money. I mentioned the Champions League. Sorry, on sorry, sorry. If I could just cut in here, I apologise, on mm-hmm. for this. I know it's a break with port- protocol, but I there was someone misspoke earlier. Yeah. Uh, member of the team, and I'd just like to clear it up okay. before the end of the show. Uh, run DMC, it's like that. 
uh, went to number one in 1998. It's tr- it's true. That was a remix done by Jason Nevins. The original song, of course, came out in 1983. I just felt it was important that I correct the record there. Jason Nevins's take on It's Like That was nevertheless an international smash, selling five million copies, writes The Guardian. Sure, I remember the video. It was, it was, da- it was Run DMC versus Jason Nevins. It was the yeah, dance-off yeah, yeah. between the boys and the girls. Awesome. DMC felt used, pimped and dirty. Milk this cow till there's powdered music coming out the udders. <laughs> so I'd just like to clarify. But that's fair. That's I, I was news. totally unaware of the controversy about that at the well, time. I mean, I... You were in a flow at the time. I was I was Brilliant. going to jump in immediately, but I just felt, you know... You he know, got exploited. Just important. Yeah. I mentioned the Champions League earlier. Leeds against Liverpool is also on tonight. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that and talk about that tomorrow. We're also going to chat tomorrow about the new Boris Becker movie, Boom Boom, The World versus Boris Becker, on Apple TV. If you have time to watch any of that one in advance, mm-hmm. the plan at the moment is to... Have that chat for Tuesday's podcast. So we'll leave you there. Plenty of football to watch and maybe a little bit of Boris Becker if you've time as well. Thanks, Murph. Thank Thanks you, Owen. Ken. And thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. And thank you, <laughs> Wow. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you during the week. If you sign up, you will hear all episodes ad-free if that's the case. The Second Captain's Podcast yeah, it's part of the ACAST Radio Network. <sighs> God damn it. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sports is important. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.